Ahoy, and welcome to the Open Journal Blogcast. Here we're going to be talking about mental health and all things related. That includes illness, wellness, stigma and support, and most importantly some of your very own personal stories. We're going to be covering projects, campaigns, education, starting conversations, and looking at some of the tools that support our well-being as well. I'm Mike, and while I'm being mindfully mindless, hopefully myself and my amazing guests will be able to show you you're not alone out there. These are real people. They do have struggles. And it starts to get on my nerves. I just shut down. So many people suffer from mental illness. To get the word out that men have got to start talking. So I told everything and her face dropped. A lot of people don't understand the depth of the situation, so they can appreciate, yeah. It's difficult dealing with our minds, and the suicidal thoughts were back. People knew that there was something not right, but they just never really said anything or probably felt like it wasn't their place to say anything. You're not depressed, it's, it's all in your head. That's probably the statement I've had people say the most. I mean, this, this, this shit is real and it's hard, it's exhausting. Sometimes you need somebody to just give you permission to say, you just need a little bit of help. And I think people realise how helpful that one conversation can be just to figure out why you are feeling the way you are. Not only did this help me to write it, it potentially might have helped some other people as well. So it sort of started from there. So many people think they're alone. And then you hear other people talk about it and they think, oh, that's, you know, that's so brave or I could relate to that. Um, And then they want to talk about it. Hello and welcome to the Open Journal Podcast. I'm Mike and I hope you're having a great week. I'm looking forward to welcoming another new guest to the podcast this week. So Philip is going to be with us. Uh, We're going to be talking a little bit about suicide awareness, suicide prevention, um, removing some of the stigmas in mental health and suicide prevention conversations and a little bit about some of Philip's work within the Vita Health Group as well um, as a clinical lead. So it's really interesting to have that opportunity to sit down with a professional and kind of hear from um, from their side, from Philip's side, um, what some of the services look like, what some of those changes have been and how people are supported. I think for me personally, knowing that we're now kind of rolling into uh, December, we're rolling into kind of winter and in the UK that very much uh, involves a lot more time where it's dark, you know, in the mornings and in the evenings it, it's darker. And I think we do, a personal opinion, uh, I think we do see more people struggle with their mental health and their well-being in this time. Not necessarily around illness, but I think just general well-being. Um, so whether you are diagnosed with a mental health condition or not, I think this is a period where um, a lot of us will struggle and we'll find motivation a bit more difficult. Getting out of bed in the morning, um, getting into work, being productive can sometimes be a bit more of a struggle at this time. So a really important conversation, I think, to have at the moment around how we support and how we engage people with conversations when they might be struggling and sometimes asking those open questions and prompting a discussion around um, whether someone is struggling with thoughts of self-harm or suicide or or whatever it looks like for them, really. Um, As always, a big thank you to all of you for, for tuning in, for listening to this episode. And if you would like to be a guest in the future on the podcast, you can find out information on the website, which is openjournalbc.com.
www.thepodcastmaker.com so you can go over there and find out information about the podcast um, and some of the usual kind of questions or talking points that we have uh, if you come on as guest. A massive thank you to Philip for coming on, for sharing his insights, his experience, his knowledge and his expertise. Um, I really hope you all enjoy this week's episode. Um, so here we are. This is episode 231 and my conversation with Philip. So it's lovely to sit down with you this evening and have the opportunity to, to have a conversation. Um, I guess, how's your, your last couple of days been? What's it been like for you at the moment? Yeah, so uh, nice to be here too. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Um, yeah, last couple of days have been busy. Um, work's busy at the moment, um, mm. as I think you'd expect. I work in mental health. Um, I work in primary care, psychological therapy. That's my day job. Um, and it's busy. It's a busy time. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've just come off the back of the weekend, haven't we? And uh, I use my weekends well. I have to have a, a good work-life balance. I've got a family. So uh, weekend is family time. Oh, that's... I, I think this has been our second weekend of, like, not really doing too much. And in the past, I would have felt really bad about, like, oh, I feel like we should be doing things, but... Um, yeah, it feels like it's needed now to have that break. I think especially if you're working in kind of the mental health field, it feels like it's been really busy now for a continuous amount of time. And the likelihood is that's probably going to pick up again as we go into kind of the winter period. So I think, yeah, it's really nice to hear you've kind of got those breaks and that opportunity just to kind of have a bit of a rest um, on the weekend. Um, Absolutely. Well, I, I think it's important, isn't it, to um, be able to compartmentalise your work and um, and yeah, when you're at home, be at home, do the things you enjoy um, and uh, recharge. Yeah. And I mean, and we're going to talk about um, sort of that, some of that kind of crisis level conversations and support that, that people might engage with as well. So there really does need to be that opportunity to just say kind of switch off and separate your life to some extent from, from some of the things that are going on in the workplace. Um I guess like to check in with you and sort of say how do you kind of manage that where your your job is involving uh, a number of conversations that could be quite um, kind of critical or high level um, how do you kind of manage that separation well I think there's probably a few things Mike I think it's important that um, if you're in a job like that you've got the right support around you um, I, I work in a clinical setting sometimes a medical setting so I you know my response, as you say, might seem a bit clinical. Um, that's my background. Um, and one of the advantages of that is you do have a support network around you and, you know, clinical supervision, being able to talk um, about your experiences, decompress a little bit is important. Um, equally, I kind of, um, I like the commute. I am um, processing my mind, decompress that way. Um, and outside of that, I think I've just, I've always been quite good at um, leaving work at work and mm. um, you know as long as you feeling satisfied that you've given 100% while you're at work um, I've always been able to kind of leave it there um, not all of that's as, as easy as it has been during lockdown I do a lot more working from home my commute used to be um, sometimes a couple of hours sometimes longer because I work about the place we've got different services about the country um, a lot of the time at the moment, my commute is um, walking across my driveway to my garage 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it's not quite the same. Um, but you know, if if what I miss out there, I, I can probably catch up on walking the dogs. Yeah, I remember. I think in that first lockdown having a couple of messages with my line manager at work and I'd sort of text him, I've moved from the kitchen to the lounge, I'm now home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, it's a very different way of working and getting used to it, like you say, can be can be a challenge at some stages to kind of um, reinforce some of those things that we were doing naturally and remember actually those journeys into work were part of our, um, like our coping strategy, some of our wellbeing skills, that kind of opportunity to compress or... Uh, like yeah just separate kind of our, our our work and our our life and it's not always obvious until you start to realize actually there's a little bit of a trouble going on here so no I mean that, that's true and I you know I'm joking about it but it is important and I think um even though I'm still at home I'm in a place at home now where I work and being able to be in a different space um and not have it all in the same room I think is important Mm-hmm. that sounds really good um so I guess kind of moving on it'd be interesting to hear we've uh sat down a little bit after uh I guess we might have originally planned to where where we were looking at things around kind of um suicide prevention and world suicide prevention day and I know you've kind of been doing a lot around that but I think um even more so now as we kind of move into winter historically where we've kind of seen the the weather get darker and colder and kind of moods tend to shift. We're also starting, I think, to see that struggle maybe with some people returning to work or social settings and not really knowing where they stand or what they're comfortable with. So really tricky time for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess before we jump into that, uh, quite a big topic, it'd be interesting just to hear a little bit about yourself and kind of what's led you to, to being involved in um, such an important area of work and a, such a specific area of health. Yeah, so my um, my background um, has always been in mental health ever since I left college. Um, I'm in my 40s now, um, but my background's mental health nursing. I've qualified as a mental health nurse back in the in the noughties um, and worked for a while in acute services in the, the Bristol area. Um, that led me into IAPT, um, improving access to psychological therapy. I, I don't know if your listeners will have heard of that, but um, IAPT is, I guess, one of the main sources of support for most people um, who experience problems with their moods, including depression. Um, and it's a way of accessing psychological therapy through your GP or in a primary care setting. So. If you live in England, it's open to um, everyone. There's an IAP service in every region. Um, they all have different names. Um, um, but I moved into IAP uh, around 2007, 2008, I think, right back at the beginning, um, which is when um, the IAP initiative came into effect. And I've worked in psychological therapies and IAP services um, ever since, really, in various guises um, and in various different services. Um, around the country and I'm, I'm currently working for Vita Health Group who are providing um, IAP services on the NHS. Oh amazing it sounds like there's a, a real journey there as well from your kind of your studying to early career to now as well you've kind of worked your way through I guess sort of services and provision. Um, over that time do you feel there's been a change in approach to kind of the the general support around mental health that's available? 
Well, I think there has, and I think that was the the idea of the IAPT initiative to begin with. Um, it was set up initially because care was inconsistent across primary care. What you're able to access varied depending on who your GP was and um, you know what they were sort of providing or commissioning locally, and it, it standardised that. It made psychotherapy and evidence-based therapies available to everyone, and so there was a big um uptake in that and um so i think what we've seen over the last um 10 or 15 years or so are a number of different kind of labels and diagnoses that used to be very specific and now you know common parlance and you know we we see and hear a lot of it a good example would be post-traumatic stress disorder you know back when iaps first came about you very rarely saw a case of post-traumatic stress disorder um, it was still something that was spoken about in the context of veterans and and that kind of thing. Whereas now it's quite a prevalent disorder. You know, we talk about it a lot. It's very rarely in the context of military service, um, much more in the context of trauma. Um, and yeah, and that would just be one example. But I guess um, a lot of those labels are more common now. I think it does feel like there's that shift, doesn't it? And it's mm-hmm. um, we've had some conversations recently where it's talking about kind of that journey between uh, like awareness raising is happening now and now it's kind of the next stage is kind of actually educating ourselves. And um, that journey is a, a slow journey, but progress is being made. Um, and I think particularly when we're talking about uh, kind of suicide awareness and support on that kind of crisis side, again, that feels very much in the same guys of actually there's much more awareness there are more conversations happening yes we need to do more about people being educated about some of the signs some of the um, symptoms and how to maybe support or signpost people in certain situations but that also feels like it's kind of moved along a little bit with that mental health in general yeah I think it has I think GPs are much better at it now there's much more awareness Um, I think with the development of um, psychological treatments and the availability more to the point of psychological treatments there is a slight move away from antidepressants so there's maybe more onus um, to talk to people more specifically about what they may be experiencing and of course what we're realizing now maybe in the last five years particularly is the importance of destigmatizing mental health issues increasing awareness and um hopefully facilitating conversations about it because obviously at the moment we're hearing a lot about um, how good it is to talk but of course what follows those conversations is what supports available and you know what's what is talking doing for me Um, and you know in, in terms of suicide awareness I think it's about you know raising the issue of how you're feeling you know it's good to talk um as a piece in itself is about you know being able to um, be emotionally literate be able to talk about your emotions being able to process experiences that you've had by vocalizing them and that has a very positive impact on your mental health but it's also about sharing and letting other people know how you're feeling so that they can support you um, and be aware of things that might be going on for you I think yeah I can't agree more really I think there's so much of that um the the talking side of being really important and I think for me it's it's also looking at why it's important for us to be talking about suicide and suicide prevention almost from the start because I 
I guess this is a personal thing and feeling like there are times when uh, conversations about mental health and well-being are avoided because people are concerned or worried it could lead into a conversation about suicide. Um, so by making people not happy, but maybe more comfortable, more confident to have these type of conversations that empowers and informs not just these, but also much wider discussion around mental health and our health in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's odd to think about it because, you know, when you've worked in mental health for a long time, as I have, it does become a bit matter of fact. And it's easy to forget how taboo a subject it is, how difficult it is for someone to talk about their own experiences. But also, I think what we're talking about here is sometimes how difficult it is to ask. Um, and maybe that's because um, you don't know what to say. Maybe it's because you think, Actually, by asking, you might make something worse. You might put an idea in someone's head. Um, but it's really important to kind of dispel those myths, I think, and, uh, you know, to really get to the heart of the issue. You know, it, it's always better to ask. I, I don't think you can make someone worse by, um, you know, having a, a frank and open conversation about it if you're worried that someone is feeling low. I, I agree. I think it's it's yeah i guess it's that it's that big thing isn't it and it's also realizing sometimes it's a almost an echo chamber sometimes of those of us that are prepared and happy to have these conversations and encourage others remembering that there's someone today having their first conversation or considering their first conversation and how much of how much of a different place that person is into where we are kind of encouraging people to speak it can be a really difficult thing that there are still people that are almost left until they get to a crisis point before they're coming forward. Um, so I guess kind of looking back on, we've had um, kind of earlier this year, the, the uh, World Suicide Prevention Day. Do you feel like there has been a change in approach to these type of conversations, to the type of support that's had publicly kind of amongst most people rather than like you say kind of in our in our groups of people that maybe are engaged in these conversations anyway or on a more regular basis yeah I think so I think I mean it's difficult to um to answer that question accurately because I I see it from a certain place you know mm. I I see it from um the point of view of um, a nurse working in psychological therapy um but I do think um people are less taken aback these days when you do ask about it and we do ask frank questions and I think it's it's something we do as part of the course now so maybe part of it comes from us maybe it's about um how you ask the questions and actually kind of setting an example look we're going to talk about this it's not a problem it's really normal it's just part of what we do rather than making it something it's not because for a lot of people um having um thoughts of suicide or suicidal ideation doesn't mean they're risky, doesn't mean they're going to um, act on those thoughts, doesn't mean they're actively suicidal, as it were. It can just be a really normal part of feeling low, feeling depressed. Um, but just checking in with that person, making sure they are safe, no harm can come from that. Mm-hmm. It is, and I think it feels like a more positive space now, I think, that, that, that those kind of discussions are happening that those kind of services are more publicly visible and discussed I think is a really important thing as well Mm -hmm. um in terms of like someone if someone was was 
struggling or looking for support like what are the different avenues that you would traditionally kind of signpost people to or to um maybe say like these certain tools would be useful i don't know if those are sort of things that you would would encourage people to look at well i think what we like to check out with people is what their own resources are first of all so when when people come to an iap service um for argument's sake because they're feeling depressed or you know they've got um, a problem with anxiety that could lead them to um feeling desperate um having suicide uh, suicidal ideas Part of what we do at, at the very beginning is talk to them about that, kind of understand what those thoughts are. And for a lot of people, just normalise them in the context of what they're experiencing with their mood, which a lot of people experience. You know, it's it's really normal. Not everyone asks for help for it, but, you know, even pre-COVID, we know that one in four people at any given time might be experiencing a common mental health problem. Um, so, you know, once we're through that, a lot depends on the individual and what they want support with. So um, we can signpost people around the community and in different areas, there are different resources available. Um, and a lot of them we provide ourselves. A lot of them would come in the form of psychological therapy. But in terms of managing themselves and, you know, their own resources, um, I think something that is really important when talking to someone who... Um, feels that there might be a crisis point or um, they have some level of intent to act on suicidal thoughts um, is just to talk about um, what hope they have, um, what things they're looking forward to, what they're planning in the future. Um, but I guess more importantly and more immediately, what support they've got around them to help them with that, remind them of that um, and who they're prepared to talk to um, um, and encouraging those conversations and maybe um, facilitating them on their behalf you know is there a relative that you could speak to would you mind if I spoke to them just to let them know you, how you're feeling um, I think that's one of the single most powerful things we can do because you know when things um, do reach a point where you know tragically someone might end their life um, something that often comes out in the re reviews that we have um, into incidents like these is family members who'd say oh well I just didn't know I had no idea um, that, you know, my relative was feeling that way, which is really sad. And it's, it's often um, wrapped up in within certainly the NHS space, you know, these ideas around confidentiality and who can share what and et cetera. So I think where we're identifying um, that people are feeling that way, immediately asking at that point, you know, can I speak to a relative on, on your behalf or are you happy to do that? Who, who else knows you're feeling this way? making sure that there's a network of people who can who can support if needed is really important yeah i i it's really interesting to kind of hear the way you speak about it as well because it sort of strikes things in my mind of that balance isn't it of well it's really important to engage with the professional service because if you are getting to that kind of critical level you you really do need to involve a professional service but getting to the stage where we don't just see it as I get to this stage and I, I speak to this person, actually building up that support network of, like you say, different people um, that you can have maybe different aspects of your conversation with, that there are more than just one person aware of how you're feeling or the things you might be struggling with, um, I think is so important because, it again, it's trying to tackle some of that stigma around um, like this is a conversation we have behind a closed door and in a confidential space and where you're it's it's a private safe area that's great 
but that's not the only place you can have this conversation mm-hmm. and there's that real balance isn't there between kind of creating a safe space but also encouraging those conversations to be more accessible um, and to not just be with um, only your your counsellor or your practitioner or whoever you're working with, mm. including, like you say, family member, friends, whoever that is, um, so that they are aware of kind of where you are and maybe are able to offer a different type of support to you as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, part of it is having more resource to talk, but I guess what's at the crux of it is that um, if you are accessing a therapist or a counsellor, you know, apart from, you know, at, at the very kind of thin end of the wedge, if you like, you know, secondary care mental health support, um, the majority of people who are accessing mental health support will have access to a therapist or a practitioner, maybe for an hour a week if they're lucky. Um, there are many more hours in that week that they've got to contend with by themselves um, and they'll need other support to do that. Um, so yeah, making sure that people are um, are plugged into the right networks um, mm. is really important, and 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 actually that's part of identifying what the risk factors are around a person. Because I mean, there's very rarely a, one thing. I guess um, you know the risk of um, suicide, someone um, taking an action towards suicide, is really hard to predict. You know, there's we can talk about risk factors there's lots of them but people can have all of those risk factors and and not get close to acting on them whereas some people can be um the opposite so it's i guess it's um it's a really difficult thing to assess um and i think you just have to look at the signs and having a conversation about networks gives you a warning sign you know do i need to be more concerned about this person not necessarily because of what they're saying about what they think and what they feel but you know, when they're not seeing me, who can they see? Um, and does that contribute to how they feel? Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it can be a really tricky one, can't it? And I think I, I have noticed sometimes when we see conversation around supporting people, often we naturally go to what are the signs that we can see to kind of prompt us as friends or family members um, or maybe um, as professionals to sort of identify this person might be struggling but a really important one for me you kind of touched on there is is there can be no signs there can be um nothing that's noticeable there also could be signs but we just don't see them because we only see them for an hour a week or you only see them while you're working with that person or at the i don't know at your sports club with them and your interaction of an hour three hours a week just isn't necessarily going to represent what their whole life is like um So I do think it's trying to shift that mentality a little bit to rather than I've noticed something, so I'm going to check in with you to just I'm just going to check in with you because I genuinely care like how you are. It's it's that's, I think, where the education starts to come in of like, have you actually checked in with people and are you waiting for a reason to check in with people? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. You know, the warning signs may be there, may not be. you're more likely to see them if you have checked in with someone, aren't you? So I think, um, you know, whether we're talking about the workplace or whether we're just talking about our friends, you know, kind of promoting that kind of, um, I, I guess it's friendliness in a way, isn't it? It's accessibility. Yeah, yeah I guess so, yeah. Um, it, it's just um, helping people understand that, you know, other people do care and acknowledging that we're not always that good at showing it. 
Mm. doesn't mean we don't care but you know you have to allow that conversation to happen don't you and I think Mm. if someone is feeling low if they are um, feeling depressed or even feeling suicidal um, I think the reality for a lot of people is that they're less likely to express that Um, they're not going to reach out so um, being open with them and allowing them to to speak is is really important and I guess uh, in terms of like someone uh, maybe feeling more confident about accessing a service like if someone feels confident and comfortable enough to share their experience whether that's kind of publicly through stories or just privately with friends and family what kind of role do you think that sort of can play on destigmatizing accessing a service or being someone that's used a service by hearing oh it's something my friend has done or someone I know has done um, and just seeing more of those stories visibly um, does it have an impact has it has an impact well, what we see is more and more people accessing services all the time. So I hope there is an impact. Um, um, I, I think first and foremost, um, if you see um, stories or examples of people who are being open about their mental health, getting it more into the public consciousness, seeing that they are, um, they have a positive story to tell. You know, I was feeling this way, but. Um, I was able to access support here. It just brings it more into the, the conversation generally. And, you know, we're, we're nowhere near it. But if we can get to a place where going to speak to your GP about your mood is as easy as going to speak to your GP about the pain in your leg or your headache, you know, that that's where we want to be because it's the same. You know, it's very difficult to separate, separate out our physical and our mental health that go hand in hand. But we do focus so much more on, on our physical health. So I think having those conversations in the public um, arena more so you can see kind of celebrities or even just kind of friends and family um, who are able to talk about it more, be role models in terms of um, how they're talking about the mental health. Um, I think that's that's obviously a really positive thing. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think it's it's gauging now, isn't it? Like it's, it's I guess it means different things to different people. Um, and there is that side as well that sometimes we hear about kind of negative experiences that people have had. And I think with any product of any service, there will always be people that have a negative um, experience. And there can be things that we learn from that. And sometimes it can distract us. It's quite a difficult one to manage. Um, but I think the one of the most common things I guess I hear as a negative is, is kind of things like waiting lists and times to interact with services. Now, often my, kind of my natural response is, well, that's why we need to encourage people to come forward earlier. So um, hopefully it means you can access the service sooner. But if it does mean you're waiting a period of weeks, maybe months, that's from a place of struggling with symptoms rather than kind of being in crisis. Um, are there things that kind of you notice that people seem to still sort of struggle with or that are issues that we're kind of still working on improving at the moment? Well, waiting lists are a problem. Um, you know, I think nationally, I mean, how do you put a positive spin on that? I think if weights could be down across the board, it would be better. But the fact that they're up speaks to more people accessing services, which is a good thing. Um 
And I think, you know, maybe part of it is a little bit about the demystification of services as well. There's not the same perception there used to be that, you know, you're going to go and see a counsellor, you're going to be on a couch um, and you're going to have to talk about your feelings. Um, Not everyone's um, favourite topic, I guess. Um, And a lot of what is available in terms of psychological therapy isn't that anymore. There are different platforms, there are different formats to access support. Um, some of them are more involved than others. Some of them are very light touch. Um, the lighter touch options are often very good, very helpful, and often have shorter waiting lists. So I think really it's about um, managing expectation um, and you know realizing that part of accessing support within in primary care in particular, there will be kind of parameters that services work and they will have targets around wait times. But, you know, typically to have a course of treatment, you can wait you know, two or three months to access that support. Um, so really, it's about thinking about what support you need. Is there something lighter touch that um, I could do instead? Do I need, you know, a, um, a course of 20 sessions of CBT right now? Or would it be easier for me to access a computerized CBT program or maybe a webinar or a course, um, psychoeducation to teach me some methods to manage my mood a little bit better in, in the meantime. Um, and I guess if you do access support, at some point you have an assessment, you'll be able to have those conversations with a clinician. Um, and, you know, what I'd say to anyone is if they do find that they are going from that assessment to a point of waiting and, you know, they're worried about that, have a conversation with your therapist at the beginning about what can I do to help myself while I wait um, what can you point me to in terms of websites, resources, etc.? How can I use that help? And, and how can I stay in touch with you if I'm worried about um, being forgotten or how long I've waited? Or, or more importantly, what can I do if I think things are going to get worse? You know, if I'm in a point where I had a real dip on the waiting list and um, I find myself feeling like I'm in a bit of a crisis, what do I do? Is there a plan that you know we can put together now? Um, so that when that time comes, I've got something I can fall back on. That sounds like a really good plan. And I think mm-hmm. it's like you say, it's keeping the dialogue open and coming with with some of those questions and those thought processes of um, it is something a lot of people experience, um, especially if you've had um, some sort of uh, service or interacted with a service in the past. Um, so to go into that mindful of actually kind of what can I put in place to support me through that journey through that period um, I think is a, a really useful one for people to reflect on and, and have those conversations with the, the professionals probably that they're, they're interacting mm-hmm. with. Um, I guess looking forward we like I say uh, we're kind of rolling into winter which is historically a time when we see I don't know if it's more people are struggling but we become more aware that people are struggling I think is probably possibly a more accurate term um and it becomes again a kind of another talking point um are there things that you would kind of encourage recommend or mention in regards to supporting our well-being through kind of a winter period well I I think it it varies from individual to individual so I think the advice would be know yourself um, and know what your triggers are. Um, I think sometimes it's the weather, sometimes it, it's the amount of daylight um, or the amount of darkness we experience over winter. Um, sometimes it's more seasonal events, you know, um, feeling lonely over the Christmas period, for example, that can be a really difficult time for a lot of people. 
So prepare for that. Think about your well-being. Think about the things that um, really support good well-being. Having a chat with a friend, doing exercise, whatever the things that you do to make you, yourself feel better. Make sure you've got a structured plan for how you're going to get through those difficult um, times. And it's much easier if you can predict them in advance. Um, and aside from that, you know, it's it's everything else about the conversation we've been having already. Um, don't be afraid to talk to people about how you're feeling. Don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, it might be that you know that um, the the shorter days get you down a bit. Or you might know that um, Christmas is a difficult time. But it might be that you think now, you know, coming off the back of the summer, you're feeling robust, you'll get through it, it'll be fine. Um, but just be prepared to, you know, talk ask questions ask for help awesome thank you yeah some really good really good suggestions and think mm-hmm. um hopefully it's it's a thing that more of us will engage with as well kind of almost regardless of whether we're going to struggle through those periods of just how are we looking after ourselves and our well-being in that time um as we kind of round off our conversation we touched on a few different things we touched on some of the work that you're doing as well um if people wanted to find out a little bit more about uh yourself or the work that you're doing um, with the Vita Health Group like where can people go to to find out about some of that work? Well I, I guess the internet is always a good place isn't it so um, the Vita Health Group provides um, a number of IAP services up and down the country in different regions in the um, 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 Bristol region around Avon um, in Essex, in Collardale up north, in the Midlands, in Derby and Leicester, you know, all over the place. And um, the website is, is public access and there's lots of resources on there that anyone can access at all. Um, so if you want to visit that, that's www.vitahealthgroup.co.uk. Um, and what that will direct you to are our IAP services, which are obviously um, for the, um, the people of the regions they serve. But of course, as we've mentioned already, IAP services are available in every um, every county in the country. So, um, you know, if your local IAP service is Vita Health Group, that's absolutely great. If it's not, there'll be an IAP service there. So if you Google IAP, um, NHS England website normally has a link to your region or be able to tell you where you can get support. Um, if not, your GP will be able to do the same. I don't think there's a GP down the country now who hasn't heard of IAPT and wouldn't be able to signpost you to the right support. So, um, yeah, that, that's what I'd say. I know IAPT is a, a strange word. It's an unusual acronym, but it's um, it, it's well known now within the mental health world and with, within the GPs. Um, and if you Google it, you'll get signposted to what you need. So, um, yeah, that that's where I recommend you look. Yeah. There's so much there's so much stuff on online now loads of free resources um and they'll be attached to most most type websites but yeah ours is vita health group so do have a look awesome thank you yes i think um like you say lots of online resources becoming available now i feel like we've had the that period of kind of, well, essentially, I guess, through lockdowns, a lot of push has gone on to kind of online um, resources and developing those. And it feels like you're now really starting to see a real bank uh, and a wealth of, of different online resources that are becoming available. So really useful place to, to go and to pick up some information about services, whether it's for yourself or for someone you might know. Um, I guess just to say a big thank you to you for coming on um, for sharing your insights, your professional knowledge 
and uh, just being part of the conversation. So yeah, a big thank you for, for everything um, and all the information you've given us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Mike. These are real people. They have struggles. And it starts to get on my nerves. I just shut down. So many people suffer from mental illness. To get the word out that men have got to start talking. So I told everything and her face dropped. A lot of people don't understand the depth of the situation, so they can't appreciate Yeah, It's difficult dealing with our minds. And the suicidal thoughts were back. People knew that there was something not right, but they just never really said anything or probably felt like it wasn't their place to say anything. You're not depressed, it's, it's all in your head. That's probably the statement I've had people say the most. I mean, this, this, this shit is real and it's hard, it's exhausting. Sometimes you need somebody to just give you permission to say, you just need a little bit of help. And I think people realise how helpful that one conversation can be just to figure out why you are feeling the way you are. Not only did this help me to write it, it potentially might have helped some other people as well. So it sort of started from there. So many people think they're alone. And then you hear other people talk about it and they think, oh, that's, you know, that's so brave or I could relate to that. Um, and then they want to talk about it.